Hello and welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. My name is Ryan Sheckle and each week I interview experts and leaders about their stories and strategies on how to optimize your mind, your body, your career, and your life so that you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing your time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. Peter Drucker wrote, Brilliant men are often strikingly ineffectual. They fail to realize that brilliant insight is not by itself achievement. Scott Olson was a climbing instructor turned spy hunter in the FBI that went on to develop the FBI's leadership development pipeline. If you're a leader or want to lead others someday, you'll love this conversation. As Scott reflects on his experiences working for the FBI in New York City on the morning of 9-11 and living in Baghdad and Iraq when ISIS sprang into existence, he shares the good, the bad, and the ugly about leadership strategies he experienced in the FBI. When you're done listening, you'll have a better understanding about how leadership is all about scaling your bandwidth. If you like this episode, share it with a friend that might also enjoy it. And if this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to click the subscribe button to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And be sure to rate us and leave a review with the most impactful part of this podcast episode when you're done listening. I'm so excited to introduce you to former FBI spy hunter, Scott Olson. Scott, what's up, man? Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Absolutely. Dude, so how did you go from a climbing instructor to the FBI? Yeah, so it's it's a funny thing about life you know did from the inside looking out your own life looks pretty ordinary but uh what i'm learning more and more as i have these conversations from the outside in um everything looks remarkable and so for me really it was just a a fairly normal progression um and the the lessons i've learned along the way i think like most people you'd you don't realize you're learning a lesson until years later and you look back for that insight. So for me, it was coming up to the Boy Scouts. Um, I come from a scouting family. I grew up in Seattle. Um, and so at age 11, um, you know, when, when I ticked over, I've, uh, I've three siblings, uh, a sister who's in Girl Scouts and an older brother and a younger brother. And when you, when you ticked over age 11, you were in the scout troop. Dad was a scout master. We were hiking. And uh, I applied for a job at the local summer camp that, uh, a guy had climbed on Mount Rainier, um, and I'd done enough of that stuff as a scout that I was able to get the job. And and for me, it was normal. You know, at age 15, age 17, my friends were at the beach or they were doing their family vacations. And, and you know, I was guiding people to 14,000 feet, and we would do the mountain expeditionary style. So we camped on the summit um, on our last day and then and then came down the next day. And it was... It was a fantastic way to be a kid, but then it was, um, you know, building some other programs at, at different scout camps, go to college, go to law school. What am I going to do now? Uh, I became a, a prosecutor, um, which, you know, the the progression is what it is. It has no relation to being a climbing guide, but uh, I was a trial attorney um, for about six years and about four years in, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was married at the time. Um, two of my kids uh, had been born. The third one was on the way, and I was trying to figure out 
you know, what do I really want to do? Because I, I didn't see myself, you know, being a prosecutor and a trial attorney for the next 30 years. So I had a witness who was an FBI agent from a local small office, and we got friendly. And that's how I learned about the counterintelligence mission. I had no idea that the FBI chased spies inside the U.S. I mean, I thought the spy stuff was all the CIA. I had no idea. But when I heard that, I thought, you know what? That this is for me. Um, and so I I applied and I got accepted with the intent to do counterintelligence work. And the funny thing is, I remember um, back then, so this is like 96, um, when you went to the academy, you were in a class of about 50 other new people going through new agents training, and they would bring um, active FBI agents who were in the middle of their careers, like 10, 12-year agents, out of their field office, and they would come to the academy for 15 or 20 weeks and sort of take you through the process. And they're called field counselors. One of our field counselors got up on day two and introduced himself and, you know, talked about his background and stuff. And he said, listen, I'm not going to tell you a lot of things, but I do have some advice for you. Um, there are a lot of things you can do in this organization. And there are only two things that you don't want to do. The first thing you don't want to do is work counterintelligence. And the second thing you don't want to do is go to New York. And I'm like, wow, I took this job to go to New York and do counterintelligence. And, and that's where I ended up. I mean, the kid from Seattle at age 34 ends up in lower Manhattan chasing GRU officers around the UN community. And what I realized after about a year is the reason why he said that is because when you're doing counterintelligence work, you can't tell war stories because everything's classified. And so if you weren't in that counterintelligence community, you thought the counterintelligence people didn't do anything because when you were out having lunch and telling war stories, the counterintelligence guys couldn't tell those stories. So there was no reputation you could build in the organization if you were doing counterintelligence work. But every time an organized crime or a white collar crime expert got assigned to a counterintelligence squad, it was about three weeks. And uh, the, the response generally was, wow, I had no idea what you guys do. So. So was I he just it was a career? Yeah, was he just saying that because like he didn't understand, or was he saying it because it was like you won't be able to actually share your stories? I mean, why? Why would he, he even say it was because he didn't know? He really didn't know. And and you know, the the FBI is a large government agency. It's a small part of a huge government agency. It's thirty five thousand employees, and it's an institution. Um, and it's part of the Department of Justice, which is many times that big. And institutions have inertia. They have their, um, their, their status things. And at the time I came in, remember, it's 96, right? So it's way pre-9-11. Counterterrorism didn't exist as a thing. The organization that I worked in was the National Security Division. And counterterrorism was a very small section in the huge mass of national security, which was all counterintelligence. So institutionally, the best people were Donnie Brasco, you know, chasing wise guys around New York, or they were doing the big fraud cases and the big Ponzi schemes. And, and that was the 800 pound gorilla. The, the counterintelligence 
uh, folks who are sort of in the shadows, you know, chasing spies. You just you weren't part of that mainstream under the spotlight. Um, yeah. So what, was it almost like a little fraternity of uh, of counterintelligence then? Like, did you guys feel like you were? I mean, not like separate, you're kind of all on the same team, but I mean, did you feel like you were misunderstood or you were your own all, little like community? All of that. Yeah. Very much us and them. And then, you know, when, when September 11th happened, that all changed, you know, all of a sudden counterterrorism became big counterterrorism grew from a small section to being its own huge division. Um, and then the, the Bureau went through its post nine 11 restructuring, which I was actually a part of. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, certainly into the late nineties. It was, it was exactly that, particularly when you consider and, you know, pull me back if I'm, I'm doing a deep dive into this esoteric stuff. But when you consider that the Soviet union disappeared in 1991, um, and, and, you know, became Russia and the former Soviet republics and the, the institutional belief in, in the West, in Western governments was, Oh well, the the Soviet Union is no more, so Russia is no longer a threat, and so this counterintelligence infrastructure, which was fighting the Soviets and wasn't particularly well understood by people outside of it, was now on the chopping block for budget cuts. It was well, there's no Soviet Union, there's no threat, so we're gonna we're gonna remove your staffing levels and and we're gonna cut you down. And what's interesting is. From 91 to 93, the number of people working counterintelligence in the Bureau was cut in half. By 93, there were more Russian intelligence officers in the United States than there had been Soviet intelligence officers in 1991. So we cut and they plussed up. And you then know, I was going to ask that because I was like, 93, I mean, you think about that and honestly, when you think about the context of American history, specifically with the Cold War, it's it's actually kind of crazy to think that like only back in the early 90s, uh, it was still going on. But there was a perception. Yeah, well, the Soviet Union's done. So we don't we don't need it. I mean, on the inside, on the inside, that was that the case or were you were you guys like, what are we doing? This is still going on. Yeah, and that's and that's the argument, and it's it's always the budget argument, right? It's well, we, you know, the the budget people generally, and I'm I'm painting with a real broad brush here, but the budget people generally would say, well, we won, so we we don't need to spend all this money on counterintelligence, and our reply was, no, we we haven't lost, but just they've changed their labels. It's no longer the KGB, it's the SVR. It's still the GRU, the Russian military apparatus. Um, yeah, we, we still have a problem here. And so counterintelligence went through a struggle in the early 90s to retain its budget. And then another struggle um, in that 2001 to 2004 time period when all of a sudden, you know, the coffers opened up, but all the money went to counterterrorism. Um, and not to counterintelligence. And, but but that's, you learn, and I'm going to sound like an old guy now, right? You learn that the um, that, that things progress in cycles. And so it's not great today. 
but tomorrow it'll come back around. And so you just have to keep your eye on what the facts are and, and make the case. And sometimes you get what you want and sometimes you don't. And, you, you know, you need to be a grown up and, and just keep pushing. Um, yeah. So I, I would imagine, and I don't know if I'm the only one that doesn't even think about this, but to me, you think about the FBI, you just think DC. It, it, it kind of just struck me like, wow, you were in New York City when September 11 happens, working yeah. for the FBI in counterintelligence. I mean, yeah. what, what was that like? So it was it was a truly surreal day for me. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm one of the people who remembers the, the beautiful, cool, not a cloud in the sky September morning. Um, I was actually standing out front of 26 Federal Plaza, which is the New York office building, um, when the first plane came over and hit the North Tower. And. I remember thinking, wow, that plane was really low. And I'll never forget the sound of the impact. It was the best way I can describe it is if you know what a, a timpani is, a kettle drum from the, the symphony hall, that big, huge brass drum. If you imagine somebody taking a sledgehammer and just bursting the top of that drum, and it's that heavy, hollow, ringing impact sound. That's what it sounded like. And I thought something is really wrong. And it, I'm always a little hesitant to share this, but this is what I did. I I was coming back, I'd gotten an egg sandwich for breakfast and I was coming back into the building. I'd run into a colleague of mine and we were chatting and I thought, you know what, I, I got to go in. So she went off to do what she was doing. And I went in to see what was going on on the 25th floor of 26 Federal Plaza. And if you go to the, the back corner of that building, you can look straight at um, the World Trade Centers. But the first thing I did was I sat down and I ate my egg sandwich. And my thinking was something bad has happened. And if I don't eat this now, I'm probably not going to eat for the rest of the day. And if I don't have something in my stomach, I'm going to be worthless. And I was right. I mean, I, I got home. I actually got sent home about nine that evening because I was going to pick up an early shift the next day. And from the time I ate my egg sandwich to the time I got home, I hadn't had time to eat anything. Um, so I went to the back of the building and just saw this gaping hole. In, in the North Tower. And it looked like a, I mean, I'm looking at it with my eyes, but it looked like a bad special effect from a B movie. And it's, it's really the only time in my life that I've sort of had the surreal experience of not really understanding what I'm looking at. Um, and so I'd taken some um, photography classes, but I hadn't brought my camera gear that morning. Uh, so I went down to the photo lab and drew a camera and a couple rolls of film. I went over to Chatham Square, which is sort of north east away from the World Trade Center to get my ray jacket and some of my gear. And while I was there, that's when the second plane hit the South Tower. Um, and as I was walking back down into the World Trade Center site, taking some pictures to see what was going on, I ran into some other uh, colleagues and we sort of formed up in front of the federal post office, which is just a half a block north of Church and Vesey, about a block and a half away of that whole World Trade Center site. And I was standing on the sidewalk in front of the federal post office 
when the South Tower collapsed. So I was one of the people that was sort of running north out of that cloud. And then the rest of the day was, you know, directing traffic, helping people get to ambulances. Later in the afternoon, we were starting to set up our command post. Later in the afternoon, I came back down uh, to get my car and number seven World Trade Center was on fire. And this is this is a 45 story building that covers a quarter of the block. And there was fire coming out of every single window. It was just, yeah. And I remember thinking after both towers were down, I, I called, I called my parents in Seattle just to let them know that I was alive. And, and I remember telling them 30 or 40,000 people must've died. I just, I can't imagine tens of thousands of people didn't get killed. And so I was surprised when, when the number, you know, the, the, the 3000 plus number came, I just, those huge buildings down into a pile of rubble. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. That's, that's one of those experiences that anyone, you know, older than, than 20 years older or <laughs> probably 25, 30 years old at this point, um, yeah. I could remember it. Uh, it's going to be ingrained in everyone's uh, psyche, at least in the United States for a long time and probably worldwide for a lot of people. And sure. yeah, I, I remember, you know, I was, at, I was in college at the time and it was, it was that morning and we all just were stuck to the TV and there's, you know, I'm in upstate New York and there is a lot Where'd of kids in college? our school. Uh, we're in Rochester. Oh, okay. so it's five yeah. hours. Um, yeah. But, but I had a lot of kids in our school that, that had family and were from the city and it, yeah. it was pandemonium and no one knew what was going on. And uh, that's crazy. I can't imagine being, I guess, on the inside of government intelligence and I guess not only understanding what people were capable of, but that things like this were happening, could happen, and then having to wrap your head not just around like, well, there's going to be a lot of cleanup and support and like, like emergency help right now. But I'm sure you guys were tasked immediately with having to do counterintelligence and try to figure out what's going on, what's coming up, what, you know, how do we continue to protect the entire country? Yeah. And it's, it was, it was a very interesting dichotomy because the instinct is to go to the X, right? That's the, that's the phrase. You, you go to the X, you go where the incident is. And so in New York, we, you know, we, we named the case, we, we, you know, started, you know, doing evidence collection and processing and all that stuff. But we very quickly realized, and this really, I think, has, has not been widely published, but the incident happened there. And so there was, you know, body recovery and a lot of pain and a lot of infrastructure that needed to be replaced, but there was really no investigation that needed to be done at ground zero because none of the behavior that led to the planes running into the building had happened in New York. It had happened in Boston where they got on the planes. It had happened overseas where they had done the planning. Um, and it, and, and so there were other field offices that really had a piece of the investigation itself. And in New York, my, posting after about a week and a half was actually in the command post on what they call the dispositions desk. So I was reading all of the reporting that was coming in just to make sure that it was administratively sufficient 
So I, I sort of saw a lot of it. And most of the reporting that came out of New York was, yeah, I heard a plane fly over and I heard a big boom and, you know, thousands and thousands of reports like that. But that doesn't really tell you who Muhammad Adda was. And it doesn't, you know, tell you who Osama bin Laden was. And it doesn't tell you how Al-Qaeda functions. Um, and, and so there's that sort of odd dichotomy that where the pain is, isn't where um, the the harm is, if you will. There's a, it's funny, and I don't know how I remember this, but there's an old proverb that comes uh, out of an African tradition. And it says, look not where you fell, but where you slipped. And it's like one of those forehead smacking. Yeah, you know. Now don't don't look at the curb you land your hip on. Look at the banana peel. It, it's it's that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, look in a way. I, I mean, you're fortunate that you could focus on the stuff that was going on in New York, right? Because if you if you were tasked with this incredible counterintelligence uh, uh, activity at that time, then then you wouldn't be able to focus on the other important aspects, which was the emergency, uh, the emergency response. It was the dispositions desk. It was it was the stuff that needed to be done, and it needed to be done by somebody who yeah. was capable of doing it. And if you in New York, if your entire team in New York was tasked with also doing all the counterintelligence work that had to do with the event itself, then yeah, you're right. You, it would have been even that much more, I guess, overwhelming, I would imagine. So it's probably, you know, fortunate in a way that, that your other offices in Boston and, and DC, I would imagine uh, with the Pentagon and everything um, also had to pick up the slack and do a lot and not pick up the slack, but we're, I guess, you know, right, there, they had more I mean, to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the bureau is, is organized in the U S and around the world so that, we already have people located everywhere so that the work can be done without having to dispatch people. And so they were, you know, in Boston, they were um, pursuing all of the issues that needed to be pursued out of, you know, how these guys got on airplanes at Logan airport. But, you know, when, when you talk about the counterintelligence thing, and, and this is the way spy agencies work, right? It's actually a pretty great opportunity if you are, a Russian or an Iranian um, or North Korean assigned to New York, the city's blown up. All of the law enforcement and safety organizations are focused on lower Manhattan. It all of a sudden gets a lot easier for you to collect intelligence because everybody's looking at that tragedy. And so that's something that we had to deal with. Um, but, you know, as a country, we were overwhelmed. Certainly as an agency, we were overwhelmed. And what did we do? We built counterintelligence division. We went from this to this. And then after we did that and the the report came out, it was, okay, we need to, we need to do a better job communicating. We need to do a better job communicating about you know, classified information that's difficult to share because it's sensitive and it's classified. And that was the... That was the intelligence piece um, that I was involved in, part of the restructuring, which then led me to be promoted to assistant special agent in charge uh, in the intelligence um, division in New York to help implement 
the stuff that we built during the restructuring in New York. Um, and then that sort of set me up for my posting in Baghdad, which uh, in 2013, I became, I became the legal attache in Baghdad. Um, and so I went and lived in the Middle East for, for 20 months from 2013 to 2015. And that's when Al-Qaeda in Iraq became ISIS. I was on the ground watching that. Um, I was on the ground when uh, the Jordanian pilot with Kasazba um, had a plane malfunction or he was hit by a rocket and he had to eject and ISIS found him on the ground and they murdered him in a brutal way. And just seeing how the Jordanian population responded to that and being able to compare it to how the the U.S. population in New York responded to 9-11, you know, over the distance of 12 or 13 years was was fascinating. And I think that's part of what has allowed me to sort of come back from the Middle East, finish out my career in the Bureau doing these HR projects because it's all about people, right? And then as I'm launching into what really matters to me, which is high-performance teams, it's it's all about people and how you respond to stress and how people function in consequential environments. And, you know, to circle back around to your initial question about trajectory, you know, when you're the metaphor I like to use is when you're at the bottom of a mountain, you know where you're going, you're going up to the, the high point and you may have a plan, but you don't really know how you're going to get there because a route might not go and you're going to have to change and do some decision making. But when you're at the summit, you can look back and go, oh, yeah, I went, I went that way and I went that other way. And of course, we had to back off. And it's so obvious then. So when I look back. Being in, in Iraq, um, living in Erbil and Amman and, and Riyadh and Doha, um, restructuring the Bureau, um, being present for 9-11, having been a criminal prosecutor and having been a, a climbing guide, it's all consequential environments. Um, it's some boardrooms and some meetings, but it's all consequential environments that test a person's willingness to act. And all of a sudden you get a very good understanding between what a person can do, what they're capable of and what they actually will do in the event. Yeah. Uh, I love this. I love that metaphor. I think it's, I think it's perfect. And I love the visualization of being on the top of the mountain. As you were describing it, I was picturing myself atop a mountain, clear day, looking down at the ground and as you were describing it, I was saying, oh, yeah, okay, right there. And just pointing down, we moved there. We pivoted here. We climbed here. All those little things. And I love the concept of being able to stand and having this giant 30,000-foot view saying, looking down, this is what I did. Because you're right, and I know you had alluded to it early on, saying you don't necessarily know how to get up. You know you're going up, but you don't know the exact steps. You can have a plan. You should have a plan, but that plan is going to have to adapt. So let's let's uh, unpack this a little bit. So right now, as a leadership consultant, you own a company um, developing leaders. You actually said that that your your goal and your 
purpose is creating high performance teams, which I absolutely love. So on top of the mountain right now, Scott Olson looking down on his life, looking down on, you know, let's call the base uh, back in Seattle as a climbing instructor, even, you know, going through 9-11 as an early FBI agent. What points are you looking at saying, these are the main principles. These are the main points of the mountain where I had to make a change, where I defined this purpose, this track, this trajectory to get to the top. What are some of those points? And what are yeah. they? So it's, it's, this is where hindsight is useful. Um, and, you know, people often talk about, you know, hindsight being 2020 to make the point of, you know, when you look back, you shouldn't look back and regret. Um, and, and I agree with that, but I don't think it goes far enough because when you're just as I'm listening to you describe what it's like to be on that metaphorical mountain and look back, it's the juxtapose between looking back and, and going, yeah, when we got here, we made this decision and not that one. And understanding that the way you felt when you were making that decision was very different from the way you feel now looking at that perspective. And so the key, I think, to developing people, one of the keys to unlocking potential in other people is to help them understand not that they need to get there and use hindsight, but to take that insight of when you're in the moment and you're making this decision, you're going to have that insight. So eventually, so trust your instincts. If you think it goes left, go left. If you can articulate why, that's great. But if you can't articulate and you don't know what to do, I think it's really important to trust your gut. Um, because the worst thing that you can do is, is do nothing, is, is to say, well, I'm not sure which way it'll go. So let's, let's explore some more. Let's collect more data. Sometimes you can afford to, but it you, know, you can scatter out for four days and now you're out of food, so you got to go down. And so it's it's not taking a risk if you're if you're managing the risk. Um, so that's the that's sort of the the meta approach. Um, but really, what I look at in terms of sort of the the pure leadership thing, um, you have to, I think, start with, where does leadership begin? Where does it really begin? Because if you don't understand where it begins, I don't think you can understand what it is. And some people will say, well, leadership begins the first time you're promoted. I mean, first time you're the high clear, first time you're, you know, the, the manager of the sales team. And then, and that's true. But then people across the table are going to say, well, you know, lead from where you stand. You don't have to have a title to be a leadership. You can, you can lead even though you're not in charge of stuff. And then, and that's true too, but what's the unified truth? And for me, looking down that metaphorical mountain over 40 years of leading teams in consequential environments, I think leadership begins when you run out of bandwidth. When you can no longer do everything that you need to do by yourself, you need other people. And if you need other people to not do what they're doing and to choose to do what you need them to do, 
that's where leadership starts. And that's where you immediately run into a, a fulfillment, a self-worth problem. Because when you're when you're an executive, when you're running, when you're Jamie Dimon, you're running JP Morgan, obviously he can't do everything himself. It's easy for him not to be concerned that he can't do everything else. But the first time you run a sales team, you're going to struggle with, geez, I ought to be able to do more. I ought to be able to outshine everybody. As soon as you run out of bandwidth, that starts impacting your self-worth because the guy in the cubicle down the hall can do more than you. He's got more capacity. He's got more bandwidth. So that's what you should aspire to. It's the, why do I need help? Is it because I'm not good at this? I, I'm, I'm not good enough. And so what do people do? They come in earlier. They stay later. They never take a vacation. And that's a fundamental problem because if you can't get through that, if you can't get to a place where you are fulfilled and still having people do things to further your goals, I don't think you can ever be a leader. And the, the story I use, the metaphor that I use is the metaphor of the ditch digger. And you'll see this in the first promotion transition certificate course, which is if you're a ditch digger, at the end of the day, you know you had a good day because you're wet, dirty, and tired. And you're walking to your truck and the way you measure job satisfaction, fulfillment, is that you're wet, dirty, and tired. The first day, and you, you dug 80 feet of beautiful ditch behind you, and you know it because you're wet, dirty, and tired. The first day you're a ditch digger supervisor and your team has dug 800 feet of ditch, you're walking to your truck and you're not dirty and you're not wet and you're not that tired and you think you suck. And that's when you run into trouble because what do you do the next day? You show up early and you dig 20 feet of ditch. And now your team comes and they're like, okay, we've been shown up by the boss. And now all of a sudden you're micromanaging and you're doing all these things that you think are the right thing to do. And they're actually not. And the reason you're doing them is because you haven't transitioned your visceral sense of fulfillment. You're still looking for fulfillment as though you are an individual contributor instead of looking for what are the things that a leader does and start connecting your sense of visceral satisfaction to that. The other metaphor I have is any athletic coach, whether it's you're coaching your kid's soccer team this Saturday or you know, you're the winning coach or even the losing coach uh, of the NFL team in the, in the Super Bowl. When a player scores points, you don't see the coach trying to steal credit for the athletic ability of the athlete. But what do you see the coach doing? You see the coach gaining fulfillment because I put that player in the game. I teed that person up to succeed. So the athlete celebrates the goal. The coach celebrates putting the athlete in the game. That is now the leader sense of visceral fulfillment as an example. And so the reason that the first promotion transition certificate course is so important. And the reason our hashtag is do this first is there's tons of great leadership training and advice out there. And you need 
to learn that stuff to be a great leader. And there are a couple of the things I think you need in order to be a great leader, but it's a, it's a lifelong process. But if you don't early on in that process, transition your visceral sense of fulfillment from digging the ditch to putting the best ditch diggers on that ditch. So they get it dug and you feel good about having made that assignment, you will always struggle with leadership because you're always going to be struggling with this sense of, I didn't do it, therefore I had to ask for help, therefore I suck. Yeah. And, and that's why it's important. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, the company that you founded and, and the course that you have is called First Promotion Transition Certificate Course. And I'll, I'll leave a copy or a link to that in the show notes. And it's something, it's a leadership course that you've created based on your experience in the FBI as a climbing guide and just your overall work experience over 40 years on the job in numerous, numerous leadership capacities. Um, so let's unpack some of these leadership principles. I love the hashtag do this first. And the first thing to do to become a leader is to put yourself in position to be a leader. So for those listeners that are just beginning their career, 18 to 30 years old, fresh out of school, fresh out of high school, fresh out of training in any sort of capacity, what does it take to put yourself in position to even be considered for a leadership role? Or if you're not trying to get a leadership role to lead in your own life? Yeah. So I, I think I've, I've got two, maybe, maybe three things. Um, the first thing is, is a soundbite that I wish could be repeated over and over and over. Um, and it, it's simply this, People don't follow you because they like you. People do follow you because they know you like them. People don't follow you because they like you. They follow you because they know you like them. It's about how you feel about them that inspires a person, not how they feel about you. And I can't tell you how many times, particularly in the Bureau, you'd have these grizzled senior veteran agents 25-year person who had a new supervisor who was a 10-year person. And the senior guy would grouse and grouse and grouse about how this young kid doesn't know anything and then would go and do anything that that kid asked him to do. And it took me a long time to understand that the senior agents who groused and then did what they were asked to do did it not because they liked the boss, but because the boss liked them and the boss respected them, and the boss appreciated them. And so what you'll learn in the first promotion transition course is the the five, it's a 10-week course with 10 concepts, and then you do one a week with an implementation exercise that helps you grind through. The first five weeks get you through this transition, and then the next five are the refinements. But it's that is the easy soundbite key. So that, that's one. People follow you, not because they like you, but because you like them. The other thing that is critical and is really frustrating in the leadership industry now is that leadership is not inward looking. Leadership is outward looking. 
It's about them. You are not going to willingly choose what I need you to do if I'm focusing on I'm a servant leader, I'm an influence leader, I'm an inspirational leader, I am this great kind of leader, and since I'm a great leader, I can do these things, and you'll follow me. You really don't give a crap what kind of leader I am. You care about whether you think I like you and I respect you and I appreciate you. So for me as the leader, and this is the juxtapose, right? This is looking down the mountain versus looking up the mountain. As I'm the leader, I'm now looking up the mountain. So what do I need to do to be a good leader? Self-reflection is great. Understanding yourself is great. Figuring out your why is really important. And those are all really important things for personal development. But they're not a good foundation for leadership because leadership is outward facing. So what I look for in a potential leader is fascination. Introspection is inward facing. Fascination is outward facing. When's the last time you were fascinated with something? You were fascinated with a one of those little freaking puzzles or with a girl that you wanted to date or, you know, with whatever it is, you focused on that thing and you picked it apart and you didn't stop until you understood it. Great leaders are fascinated with two things. Great leaders are fascinated with people and they're fascinated with the work being done. If you are fascinated with people and with the work that those people are doing, all of the rest of all the leadership advice you can find anywhere falls into place. Because what are they saying? Ask good questions, care about people, understand them. If I'm fascinated by you, I'm going to keep picking until I unpack you and I understand who and what you are. Why? So I can put you in the game in the right position where you're strong. What happens to you when I'm your boss and I put you in the game in the place where you are absolutely strong? You may not like me because I have an abrasive personality, but you are going to play hard in that position because you like what I did to you. So fascination is really key. And again, the, the great thing about, about first promotion transition and the reason people need to do this first is because it's steps that get you there and it gets you to what I think are the, the four behaviors that leaders need to do. You need to express gratitude, acknowledge skill, put people where they're strong and accept responsibility for the outcomes. And you will learn in depth how to do that in first promotion transition. And by the time you get to the end of first promotion transition, it'll be a mantra. You'll understand it. The the hardest thing is for people who don't have fascination to find fascination. Yeah. So I was going to ask because, you know, you described the fact that it's like this, this, underlying principle that you have to have. It's one of the first things you look for when you're looking for a leader. Um, but then you also say like through the program, through the certificate course, you know, you can achieve these, these other uh, principles. So can you teach fascination or is that something that people just have or they don't have? So it's, it's a difference between strategy and tactics, right? And it's, you know, can you learn leadership and, or is is leadership instinctive? And and I think it's both. Um, it's like um, it's like learning how to paint, 
in order to learn how to paint, you have to be able to see light and color. If you don't see light and color, you can struggle to learn how to paint, but you're never going to be a brilliant painter. If you look at light and color, if you look at a flat surface, surface and brushes just make sense to you, it's going to take work to do a masterpiece, but you can do it. Fascination is seeing light and color. And I see this a lot, particularly in the IT world. You have brilliant people who found software companies and all they want to do is keep writing code and they don't want to deal with people. And that's okay. All it means is that you're not going to be a leader. You're going to be a brilliant coder. You're going to have the answer to all those problems. You probably have a remarkable bandwidth and you can get a lot of stuff done, but you don't want any help. And that means that you're not going to be a great leader. And, and here's the tragedy, right? The tragedy is you don't have to be a great leader to be successful. There are plenty of great companies out there that are making profits and doing just fine. And their leadership is terrible and their people, you know, come in and quit, come in and quit, come in and quit. And the boss can't figure it out. And it's because they don't think that they should have to care about people. I'm paying you a paycheck, so you should do what I say. Why? Fundamentally, my experience has led me to fascination. You need to be fascinated with other people in order to be able to do the work to unpack them, to create an environment around them where they actually willingly choose to do what you want them to do instead of what they want to do. And there's a fundamental difference between forcing somebody and letting them choose. And leadership is when you let them choose. Yeah. So I don't want to call you out on this, but I'm going to. So <laughs> I want to say, I, love, I, hope, love this. I, I hope I'm right on this and, and I'm going to have to look it up afterwards and verify. I want to say that Warren Buffett said that the only thing that matters for a successful company, successful might not be the right word, it's probably profitable when he's thinking of investing in it, is the fundamentals and the leader. Like the sole leader, whoever's in charge, CEO. Mm -hmm. And it's so long as the fundamentals are right and the leader is strong, he will invest in that company. I hope it's Warren Buffett. So if he's saying that that is the way to be successful, it's interesting that you said, well, you don't have to be a good leader or have a good leader to have success. But then you're also saying that there are all these really important aspects of leadership towards the team. So I'm just asking you to rethink that comment and say, well, can so a team I'm, I'm, or I'm, can I'm, a company be successful without a good leader? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to sharpshoot you a little bit. Sure. I'm going to sharpshoot a little bit. And I, I can't remember if it was Warren Buffett. It sounds like something that Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger would say. Um, and he's right, because if you're the investor, you want a, a product that makes money, whatever that product is, and you want a leadership team that is going to be great so that that product and that company is as successful as it can possibly be. You look at Shark Tank, for example. 
there are tons of people out there who have a great idea that just aren't going to sell. Just because you have a great idea doesn't mean it's going to sell. And I hate that, but it's true. Um, my point is, let's look at all the companies that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, Buffett wouldn't invest in. Let's look at all the companies that they say no to. And they really say no to most companies. Do all those companies go bankrupt in two years? No, they, they don't get Warren Buffett's money and they stay in business. So it depends on how you define success. I don't define success as tapping into 100% of your potential. I'm defining success as you're staying in business. You're good enough, but you're not great. And that's the tragedy of leadership is that there are tons and tons and tons of companies out there that won't see a dime of Berkshire Hathaway money that are going to be in business for decades and decades and decades, and they're going to make money. Um, and most of them aren't going to go out of business in, you know, until they're sold. And they have average to crappy leadership. That, that's just what I see. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm on a mission to solve that. And my mission is very simple. Let's take frustration and replace it with fulfillment. When you're first learning to be a leader, when you are trying to figure out how to get help and you're struggling with sometimes the embarrassment that you need help, what's the road? And the road that I offer is fulfillment. I think everybody can be fulfilled. You don't have to be a servant and you don't have to be a jerk in order to be a great leader. You can be fulfilled as a great leader because you're doing right by everybody and you're putting them where they're strong. And it's okay to feel good about that. It's okay to feel fulfilled. And what really concerns me these days is if you're not a servant leader, then you're a jerk. And my answer is no, no, no. Being a leader is awesome. When you take somebody and you put them somewhere where they can really perform and they are so happy, I'm not stealing their thunder by feeling proud that I put them in a place where they're doing great. I don't. And that's that's what fulfillment is. So did, did I dodge your question? No. Yes and no. Hey, Hit, hit me again, because I, I I did sharpshoot you a little bit, but I so, no. So, so this is so I'm trying. There's something I can't put my finger on it that I'm that I'm missing. But one of the things that keeps coming into my mind right now is is this concept that I feel like you're kind of describing as leadership being a scalability issue, which which I think is goes to the bandwidth. Right. Like you say, OK, well, you become a leader when you no longer have the bandwidth to do everything that you need to do. Therefore, now you're having to scale from an individual, from a sole individual purpose to right away two people. Right. So you get you get an assistant, you get someone that could come in and help you scale from 100 percent of your bandwidth to 100 percent of your bandwidth plus now the bandwidth of someone else. Right. So you're scaling from this baseline. And as you grow in leadership, 
you are then increasing that overall bandwidth from your own to your companies or your team's bandwidth. And the one thing that I feel like is missing, and, and I could be wrong and maybe we just haven't talked about it yet, is that I believe that you should strive to have the largest bandwidth you can. And I think when, you, when you're looking at like entrepreneurs or as you are looking at leaders probably within your own company, when you're looking for someone that has that fascination, I think they also have this desire to further your mission and increase that bandwidth to infinity, right? And I think where, where we're both agreeing is that a leader is the next step in that accountability of increasing your bandwidth and scaling that business and increasing that purpose and and just making it as large as possible. And I'd be interested to kind of get your perspective on that because then what we're saying, and I think agreeing on, is that leadership is the most important aspect of fulfilling your purpose and, and increasing the reach of your company um, or, or your own mission. And th- that's exactly right. But there's, there's a critical question that you need to ask. And that is when, when that leader that you describe that's scaling up this business, when they show up for work, what does that person do? So if you're, if, if you make ceramic pottery and you like a lot of companies, you know, grassroots startup, it's a hobby and you're throwing pots on the wheel in your basement and then your neighbor likes it. So you sell them one and then they want some for Christmas and you're making more. And now all of a sudden you, you build a little studio in your backyard and you quit your day job and you're making pots and you're making pots. Now what happens when you have so many orders that you can't make pots? There's one of two things that you can do. You can start raising your prices because now you have a commodity that a lot of people want, but you've reached your capacity and now you're an artist and you are going to, you know, instead of selling pots for 10 bucks, you're going to sell pots for 3000 and people are going to want the Leonardo da Vinci of pots. And, and that is a business model, but you're no longer selling pots. You're selling your reputation. What we're talking about is different. We're talking about getting the neighbor kid in to mix the clay for you. So now instead of mixing the clay and throwing pots and selling them, you're just doing the skill work. You got someone to come in and do the clay. You got someone to run the cash register. So you're no longer doing everything. You're doing some of it, but you're no longer doing everything. You're eventually going to get to a scale where you can't do anything, where you don't even have the time to throw pots. And so what do you need to do? You need to teach somebody, you need to set standards, teach somebody, several people, how to make pots. So now all of a sudden, instead of coming in in the morning and making pots all day, or coming in in the morning and making a couple of pots and then supervising, what are you doing when you show up for work? You're making sure that the cash register guy isn't hungover. You're making sure that they're following the recipe for the for the clay. You're making sure that the pots are being turned out to standard. 
you're no longer making pots. You are now, you're no longer a pot maker. You are running a pot making company. You're no longer doing the work. And that's the struggle. If you felt visceral satisfaction because you love the clay in your hands and you love making pots, most people, when they're scaling a company, struggle with self-worth. And how many times have you heard this? Well, I don't get to do the fun work anymore. I sit behind a desk now. I don't get to do what I love. And it's particularly difficult for the, the grassroots entrepreneur because you started this company because you love making pots, not because you like looking at balance sheets. So how do you find visceral satisfaction? Well, it starts with understanding that you need to transition your visceral satisfaction and you need to examine, can I feel good? And then do I feel good when I teach another person how to make the perfect pot? They're happy because they made the perfect pot. I'm happy because I found a great artisan and I've made them better than they other would be, otherwise would be. So now my visceral satisfaction isn't here's a pot that I made. My visceral satisfaction is here's a person I made. That is a different type of visceral satisfaction. But I think you need to intentionally change that sense of visceral satisfaction. And that's what first promotion transition does. It starts with understanding that there are different types of satisfaction. Then it goes to gratitude. Then it goes to skill recognition. And then it goes to the hardest part of all, which is walking in the door and not making a pot. That's what matters. And that's the hard thing. And not just walking in the door and not making a pot, but walking in the door, not making a pot and feeling good about it. That's, you take away frustration and you gain fulfillment. That's what I'm doing in this world. That's perfect. Taking away frustration, gaining fulfillment. And everybody deserves fulfillment. Everybody deserves that root sense of satisfaction. You shouldn't have to get deep picked for promotion and have your life go south and have your life be a misery. You should be fulfilled in doing that job. You really got me talking, man. I That's really awesome. Appreciate that. No, so so look, we could I mean, we could go on forever. I've like I said, I've got a list a mile long of other questions I could ask you. There I really wanted to get into a bunch of stuff. I'm going to have to have you back on and and talk about some more stuff. Like I was going to ask you, I really wanted to know about uh school security. You're, you're into a bunch of stuff, but your, yep. your, your intelligence background and everything. Um, I'll have to have you back on and, and we can dive into some other subjects, but I do have three questions that I like to end on before we yep. get to those. Um, I always love asking people who are in the military, FBI, some sort of a community like that. Um, what's your everyday carry? What, what do you carry with you right now? Cause you are into security and personal security and business security. Um, I mean, are, are you carrying like a knife? What are the most important things as a leader, as someone who has been in your experience to have on you in your car, whatever it is, um, on a day-to-day basis? So uh, happy to answer this question, recognizing that most people won't understand it. Um, one of the great things about being retired and still being authorized to, um, to, to own and, and carry firearms is, I no longer have to carry the firearm on the sign. I get to carry the gun that I want. So um, 
I carry uh, uh, Kimber handguns, uh, Kimber Alter Carry handguns. Um, they are, to me, if you compare the the Glock, which is the standard government issue, I think still to the Kimber, it's the difference between a Chevy and a Ferrari. It's just a little harder to operate. Um, a different gun, but overall, it's like anything. When you know how to drive, you can learn how to drive a race car. Yeah. So that, that's what it is for me, Kimbers. Cool. Um, what's the most influential book you've ever read? So at, at risk of sounding boring, this is the book that I recommend to everybody. And it's called The Effective Executive. And it was written like in the early 60s by Peter Drucker. Um, and it is not a long book, but it had a huge impact on my thinking. Um, and every executive coaching client I've had, I've recommended they read it. Not everybody does, but Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive is a great place to start. Yeah, that's that's one of those, you know, MBA grad school uh, first semester books. I feel There's like a reason for it. it's that good. Yeah, it, it's it's a good one. Um, if you could sit down for a drink with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? So I have a hard time choosing between two people, but the edge goes to Lawrence Fishburne. And for me, um, I would invite um, Mr. Fishburne um, to a, a deeply wood paneled room where we could smoke cigars. Um, and I would serve him my personal drink of choice, which is what I call a vor, um, which is the Russian word for godfather. The vorbizakon, thief-in-law, is in Russian, in Russia, what we would call Don Corleone, the godfather here, the vorbizakon or the vor. And so the drink is a godfather, which is two shots of scotch and one shot of amaretto, and it becomes a Russian godfather when I pour um, a shot of vodka in it. Um, so it's a, it's a vor and I know we're short on time, but I want you to understand why yeah. I really like to meet, um, Lawrence Fishburne. I remember, I mean, I've, I've loved a lot of his movies and not just the matrix ones, but biker boys, if you haven't seen it is a fantastic movie. He was a kid in apocalypse now. Um, fantastic. But he also played um, Ike Turner in the movie about Ike and Tina Turner with Angela Bassett as Tina Turner. And I remember watching a show where he was interviewed about the making of the movie. And there's there's a scene in that movie where his character violently beats Angela Bassett's character. And it's apparently historically true of the relationship between the Turners um, but it is a brutal, violent beating. And he was asked, you know, how do you how do you do that? How do you how do you engage in this act of violence? I mean, I know you're an actor, but you know, she's acting too. And I just it was years ago, and he's he does his large fishbone thing, right? Which is he looks at you and he tilts his head down and he looks at you from the top of his eyes. He's got this gravelly voice. And he said, I went to the director and I said, you're only going to get four of these, four takes. You're only going to get four of these. So make sure you get what you need because four is all you're going to get. And 
without saying more, you understood that he was committed to the art. He expected Angela and all the other performers to rise to that level of what the art required, but he wasn't going to be indulgent. He wasn't going to say, yeah, we'll just keep going and keep going because he understood that in order for it to be real, it was going to take a real toll on him as well as her. And he just, he set the bar and you could tell if, if I had been the director hearing that I would have done what that director said, which was like, okay, that's what we'll do for. And I want to talk to that guy about how he lives his life. I want to know his values. I want to understand him. And yeah, cigars and a bore. That, that's where I am. That's awesome. Thanks for asking me that question. That's a great question. A vore. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to come visit you and, <laughs> and have a cigar and a vore. That sounds amazing. Happy to uh, have. Although I'd, I'd be more of a bourbon guy than scotch. That that might be a little bit uh, peaty for me. Too, too uh, shots that's of scotch, a, but what, what, what you'll find is the sweetness of the amaretto cuts, cuts out the sharpness. Okay. And, and that's why it's one of those classic drinks, but listen, like glass of bourbon and a cigar, you're welcome at the campfire. No okay. No Perfect. Well, I'm glad we're on board. And then last question, what would be the subtitle of your autobiography? Scott Olson. Yeah. I've struggled with that one. And and what I come back with is that the name of the book is just going to be Olson. Simple. Just one word, block letters, Olson. I like that. that that's like the most uh, FBI response you could get. That's <laughs> like the ultimate dodging of the question. No subtitle. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm an unrepentant weaseler. <laughs> that's awesome scott dude this was awesome i look forward to uh to catching up again with you in the uh in the future but uh the website guys is firstpromotiontransition.com i will put a link in the show notes if anyone wants to reach out to you on social or anything is there a good way to do so yeah i'm i'm only a linkedin guy um, so you can hit uh, s olson at glenhaveninternational.com um, is uh, is the best email and you know glenhaveninternational.com has uh, some other stuff on it as well so any of that is fine awesome. or hit me on LinkedIn yeah Scott this is great man thanks so much appreciate it I, I appreciate it as well I, I really do look forward to coming back I'm your guy let me know Scott was awesome. Hey, if you like this episode, share it with someone else who might like it. And go ahead and find me on Instagram or Facebook at Every Breath Counts Podcast. And tag me, let me know what you like about it, and share it with a friend. All right, guys, until next time, make every breath count.